Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Pacey Wettstein, and I am a proud cardio nerds intern in House Jones. Thanks for tuning in to yet another extraordinary episode as part of our Narratives in Cardiology series, where we foster meaningful conversations as part of our mission to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this episode, we have the unique opportunity to hear from Drs. Katie Burlacher, Stephen Cook, Cara Denby, and Tony Pastor about their personal narratives and advocacy for the LGBTQIA community. Stay tuned as we discuss the importance of creating safe spaces in cardiology for the full spectrum of sexual orientation and gender identity, as well as diversity in the workplace. Let's dive right in. Hey, CardiNerds. Welcome back to the Pennsylvania ACC and CardiNerds Narratives and Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion in cardiology because our differences make us stronger. Today, we get to host the Indiana ACC chapter as we discuss empowering the LGBTQIA community of cardiovascular patients and professionals with some extraordinary discussions. Doctors Kara Denby, Tony Pastor, Stephen Cook, and Katie Burlacher. So friends, join us on Air Force Cardiners as we fly to Dr. Cook's home city of Indianapolis. Dan, what's the weather down there? I'm glad you asked. I hope you're suited up in your favorite winter outerwear. The ground is covered in a beautiful blanket of snow, which ground control tells us is soft and fluffy and well-suited for a safe and lively snowball fight. The sky is magnificent and cloudless and the stars shine bright and the temperature is 27 degrees Fahrenheit. As we settle in for landing, it is my honor to introduce Dr. Katie Burlacher to today's program. Dr. Burlacher is the program director of the General Cardiology Fellowship Program at UPMC. She currently serves as chair of the Lifelong Learning and Oversight Committee and was previously chair of the Faculty Development Workgroup, and she is the current governor of the PAACC State Chapter. Finally, she was the proud recipient of the 2021 Master Cardionerd Award, which is offered to faculty who support Cardionerd's mission to democratize cardiovascular education. And as Ahmed put it during our award ceremony, Dr. Burlacher has tons of accolades, titles, and accomplishments. But our favorite is that she is a major nerd and has been a constant pillar of support and mentorship for the Cardionerds from imparting her cardiobstetrics wisdom in podcasts, see episode 163 on pregnancy and anticoagulation and helping us promote diversity and inclusion as a mentor for this Narratives in Cardiology series. Dr. Burlecker, welcome once again. Thank you so much, Dan and Amit. This is just a joy to be with you every single time that I get invited. I feel honored. You do such a fantastic job. And I will say, particularly with this series, Narratives in Cardiology and the diversity work that you are doing with this and highlighting in the workforce, It is just a treat to be able to see you guys in real time as you are doing what you do best and really joining a really great crew of speakers tonight. I could not be more excited to have this discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Berlacher. And it's just so incredible for us how generous you've been with your time, your mentorship and your excitement overall for education and everyone around us. So thank you for that. You guys make it easy. It is my pleasure to introduce my good friend and co-fellow, Dr. Kara Denby. Kara earned her medical degree at the University of Alabama before training in med peds at Vanderbilt University. From there, she kept making her way up north to Cleveland Clinic, 
where she completed general cardiology fellowship, having served as chief fellow and stayed on as interventional cardiology fellow, where I get to enjoy working with her every day. Fun fact, Kara is a world-class competitive swimmer and actually won the gold medal while swimming for the U.S. team at the 2008 FINA Short Course World Championships. Kara is an overachiever in every domain and really drives everyone around her to be their best version of their, themselves. Kara, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thank you so much, Amit. Thank you for that kind welcome. I think you still got your verb tense wrong. I was, not I am. Um, but it is a pleasure to be here and be part of this um, really important discussion, I think, and, and be here with all of you. It's really a pleasure to share this with you, Kara. Next, I am so thrilled to welcome Dr. Tony Pastor. Tony spent most of his academic youth at Baylor College of Medicine, where he completed medical school, med residency, and chief residency years. He then followed his dreams to cooler weather for cardiology and now ACHD fellowships at Boston Children's Hospital. Tony is also an educator at heart and was integrally involved, or rather has been integrally involved, with a wildly popular ACHD fellows course organized by Drs. Carrie Schaefer and Michael Landsberg. And by the way, I think Dr. Berlacher is one of the project mentors for Carrie Schaefer on that project. So there's a lot of connections here, uh, whether you talk about medpeds or cold weather. I'm also very happy to see that Tony is also contributing to the Cardiators ACHD series. Yale Cardiology is so fortunate to have recruited Tony to be joining as ACHD and advanced imaging staff next year. So that is just incredible. Tony, it's been amazing connecting with you on various projects. Thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amit. It's a very nice introduction. I'm just going to start off and say, Carrie, you're the most impressive Met Pete's person here. Gold medal. Oh my gosh. And thanks, Cardio News, for giving us the space to talk about this important topic. It's it's kind of, you told like little gay Tony back in the 90s that this was happening. I would not believe you. Um, so I, I actually have the privilege of introducing Dr. Stephen Cook. Dr. Stephen Cook is a professor of clinical medicine Division of Cardiology and Department of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. He serves as director of IU Health Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program, He's a previous co-chair of the Adult Congenital Heart Association Research Committee, serves as a CEO task force on ACC health disparities and diversity, and is also a member of the ACC Diversity Inclusion Committee. He's a dear friend who teaches me about 80s music, and he's basically who I want to be when I grow up. So welcome, Dr. Cook. Awesome. Thanks, Tony. And uh, thanks to everyone, Amit and Dan and Katie and everyone on the call tonight. You know, I think this is such an important topic for kind of what I think is an underrepresented, but what I frequently refer to as a, a silent minority. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic tonight and to really remind everyone that to, to talk about our pronouns. I use the pronouns he and his and to really remind all of our cardio nerds to share your pronouns whenever you walk into a room or to ask people their specific pronouns as well. So I don't know if we want to go around the room really quickly and share everyone's pronouns before we get things started, if that's okay. I can start because I'm a millennial and I put them in my name, but so I don't know how to do things. Tony teaches me how to be more uh, a millennial rather than a generation who knows X or Z or who knows what I am. So I thank Tony all the time to help me on Twitter and everything else. So Tony, go ahead. I'll show you how to do it later. See what I put. My pronouns are he, him. Mine are she, her. Mine are also she, her. And mine are he, him. And uh, mine are he, him as well. Dr. Cook, thank you for that reminder. Really appreciate it. And you said that this community is, has been a silent minority and hopefully with this, it'll be silent no longer. Thank you all so much for being here. And to set the stage, I'd like to share a terrific ACC.org perspective written by Drs. Stephen Cook and Tony Pastor, along with colleagues, Drs. Matthew Carrazzo and Leah Reardon, titled 
finding our voices, building an LGBTQIA plus community within cardiology. This article profoundly begins as follows, and I quote, we are four gay cardiologists, each in different phases of our careers and each moved by the progress for the LGBTQIA individuals in our short lifetimes. We are proud physicians who care deeply and passionately for all our patients, just as you do. Tony and Dr. Cook, first off, thank you so much for sharing this eye-opening perspective. And it was the basis for a lot of how I planned this discussion today. But may I ask, what drove you to write this piece? And Tony, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it was July of 2020 that Dr. Berliger and Dr. Rosenthal actually published in Cardiology Magazine an article specifically introducing the topic of LGBTQI plus health and the intersectionality between that and cardiology. And uh, I think, you know, we have to give like a lot of credit to Dr. Matthew Crossos. He's the one who sort of brought the article to our attention. And I think the four of us were very excited to see the ACC commit to educating cardiologists on this topic, something we really haven't seen or, you know, any of the publications that they were putting out at the time. Um, but I, I think that it actually a backtrack, like I want to take credit for the four of us meeting because I made a Facebook group of ACHDG cardiologists. That, that's where my credit goes. But, uh, you know, when we were reading the article, we were sitting there thinking that this is like a great first step. Uh, and we were just so excited to see the topic being introduced. But we also were thinking, hey, look at us right now. We're like four adult congenital heart disease gay men, all trained at different times, different locations around the country. And certainly there has to be, like, we're very subspecialized. Certainly there's more LGBTQ plus cardiologists out there. And what better way to share the experiences of our community than have people within our community write something. And so that's sort of where the drive came. And it sort of all came together under Matthew Cronson's sort of guidance. The rest is kind of history. I don't know, Stephen, if you want to add more to that. Yeah, I agree. I think that Dr. Carrazzo really spearheaded this effort. I think that we all agree that we're excited to see the ACC finally recognizing the LGBTQ community and the idea of recognizing cardiovascular disease in this community. But I think that there are other things that we also recognize, which is the lack of the perspective of the LGBTQ cardiologists. And that's what Tony was alluding to. And I think that there's so much data about minority stress and how this is associated with poor quality of life or increasing psychological distress and even substance abuse. And today, more than ever, we know that there's a growing body of literature even demonstrating disparities in mistreatment, humiliation, sadly, even suicide and burnout amongst our LGBTQ healthcare professionals compared to our non-LGBTQ peers. And this unfortunately wasn't highlighted in this article. And I think that we really wanted to come together and share our experiences because I think this is equally important to not just recognize this is our patients and our physicians that are LGBTQ. So I think that we wanted to take it upon ourselves to really bring out this particular point and say, it took a long time for me to stumble into Lee Reardon and Matthew and Tony and be like, how many other LGBTQ healthcare professionals struggle with this same concept? And if we start like blasting or amplifying this message, then it'll be so helpful to pipeline other high school students, medical students, residents. Gosh, maybe I'm an LGBTQ person who's interested in cardiology. They're never going to get this messaging or they're going to go into primary care or psychiatry because it's safer than cardiology. 
So this messaging we thought really had to start getting out there, but I have to applaud my colleagues for, you know, getting this ball rolling. Yeah, you both really bring great perspective here and I'm really interested in hearing more. But before we go any further, just so that we're all speaking the same language, how about we define the different ways in which our colleagues and patients may self-identify? So for example, LGBTQIA+, Kara and Dr. Berlocker, would you help us define the individual letters within this umbrella? Maybe, Kara, uh, you go ahead and start. Sure, Dan, I'd love to. It is a bit of an alphabet soup and I think confuses a lot of people and makes people uncomfortable and not knowing what label to use and what they all mean. So I get the easiest letters, I think, the ones that more people feel comfortable with. So L refers to lesbian, typically. So all these terms, I should start, all these terms refer to a person's sexual orientation. And so a sexual orientation describes a person's emotional, romantic, or sexual attraction. And so I think that's important, important to know. So lesbian typically refers to a woman who's attracted to the same gender. So another woman. Gay typically refers to a man who's attracted to the same gender. So another man. I think it's important also to say that the term gay also can be used more generally to describe people who are attracted to an individual of the same gender. And so that term can be used more freely or broadly. And then bisexual is our B that typically will refer to a person who is attracted to the same gender as well as the other gender. And then I think a few related terms that kind of fall more into that category are pansexual or omnisexual. So being attracted to an individual regardless of gender, being just attracted to who the person is rather than the societal box that they fit in, I guess. That leaves me with the hard letters, I think, or the harder letters that I, you know, to be honest, I thought as I was preparing for this, I was like, I know what all of those mean. And then I was like, okay, so T is transgender, or transitioning. So it could be mean both, meaning transitioning in your gender identity. And transgender is that I see myself as a gender or feel as that I am a different gender than I was actually born with. So depending on who you talk to, it can be transitioning or transgender. And the Q is, I think, a couple things. It could be either questioning. I think that was one of the first, the historically, what it was known as questioning. I'm questioning my gender. I'm questioning my sexuality. I think nowadays, a lot of people presume that it means queer. And we were having a, a kind of group chat maybe about the term queer. And I'll come back to that in a second, because I think that's probably a bigger umbrella term that we can all define as we see fit. And then I is intersex. And that really is a larger umbrella term also for people who were born either with different kind of a mix of sexual characteristics and don't fit neatly in any one of the categories. And then A is asexual, meaning that I don't feel romantically inclined towards anybody or anything particularly. And so they consider themselves asexual. And then the plus, I think, is really just there to say inclusive of everything else in any way that you would like to be categorized or defined. I'll pose this next question to maybe Stephen and Tony. When I decide or when I think about the word queer, I use it as a bigger umbrella to include a lot of different identities and, and all of the in-betweens. And I think historically, it was thought as a, a slanderous word. And I think it has been reclaimed in the LGBTQ or queer community as much more of a positive celebratory term. I'm curious if you guys have a specific definition for that. I think the the very famous Netflix show Queer Eye right now, that is on, I don't know, what, whatever season it is that a lot of people, including me, like, um, you know, they're like, well, queer just means kind of all of the above. Um, but Tony or Steven, I will let you be the experts here and correct me. Sure, I could I can start and then Stephen might correct my description as well, because I think the cool thing about the word queer is it can mean anything that you want. As you said, Dr. Berlicker, it's this umbrella term. It just really means that 
you don't identify as a straight or cisgender person. Uh, and I think it's a, I think it's a really nice word because if you feel like your identity is evolving or you don't identify with the specific boxes or identities that have been prescribed to you, then it's a word that I think a lot of my friends and other people in our community feel like it's less stressful. It's a word that they can use forever. It's a word that they can use transiently until they, they land on another word. And I do appreciate you mentioning its history and slander and prejudice and I think probably Stevie could speak to this too, but I can't think of any gay man around the country that hasn't been called queer in a derogatory way. And so I also like the word because in a way, if we use it, it's us sort of taking the power back from people who use it in, in a way that's hurtful. Yeah, Tony, I think that's really nice. I, I think queer is a really important word to use as a definition, especially when you, you know, I think it's to define yourself as not heterosexual, but I think it's really important for people who may identify themselves as non-binary, which is a term that we haven't really defined yet. And so that may be a person who really doesn't exclusively identify themselves as a man or a woman. So they're not going to find themselves in the LGBTQIA alphabet. So queer is very appropriate for them. So they may identify actually as both a man and a woman or somewhere in between or following somewhere completely outside of both of those definitions. So that's really helpful for them to kind of say, well, I'm queer. Um, and then there's so many gender expansive identities. I'm gender fluid or I'm gender queer. So I think using this as an umbrella term is so helpful to remember as we define this term as, yes, this is an umbrella term, but there's a lot of other gender identities that can fall underneath this term. So I think this is a really helpful term to really understand, define, and teach, actually. Kara, Dr. Burlacher, Tony, and Dr. Cook, thanks for going over these definitions and helping us clarify these terms. The article goes on to define two challenges which lay ahead for all Carter nerds. And I quote, there are still many challenges and hills to climb to make future cardiologists who are LGBTQIA plus feel welcome within the professional community and for all cardiovascular professionals to provide sensitive, compassionate care to LGBTQIA plus individuals. Yeah, so there are two broad challenges named there. Let's tackle these one by one. Beginning with fostering a professional community that is more inclusive of everyone, the very ethos of this narrative series. The article went on to describe the emotionally and mentally exhausting experience of needing to come out over and over and over again. The contrast between personal experiences against social norms, the lack of mentorship from LGBTQIA plus positions, sadly also the decrease in peer diversity when it comes to entering fellowship and tragically witnessing or being the subject of different forms of discrimination. Now, as a straight cisgender guy, I was saddened, if not angered, when reading about these experiences. And I feel grateful that the authors were able to share them with so much vulnerability and, and, and clarity. I strongly urge the audience to read it, to feel these emotions for themselves. To build on it, maybe Tony and Dr. Cook, could you speak about uh, what aspects were particularly meaningful for you to write about? And Kara, Dr. Berlacher, maybe you could piggyback on that and discuss which parts were particularly relatable for you. Yeah, I think I can start with that. I think this section on advocacy and education for patients in the article was simultaneously like rewarding to write about, but also quite painful. And I say that because the four of us, as I talked about earlier, come from different backgrounds and like all over the country. And yet like the one thing we had in common besides like love of adult control heart disease was that we all experienced discrimination. And, and 
what's what's a little stressful about that is that like me being the youngest, as I uh, remind Stephen all the time, uh, I should have it the best, right? I have my privilege should be so much higher. And yet I have stories of being discriminated at every level of training from med school on to fellowship. And I think naive me moving from Texas to Boston thought I was going to come to a Mecca of a city that we're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and there would be no prejudice here. And I think what I learned early on is that homophobia is everywhere. It's pervasive in every city. It's pervasive in our medical field. And I think what's really hard about being a physician and dealing with that prejudice is that when you have patients that identify as LGBTQ+, and you see them getting discriminated by your colleagues or nurses or physicians or whomever, you have this sort of tax, this, this obligation to educate like whoever you're with and protect them. And yet at the same time, you have to do that. While, and we sort of describe this too, while also feeling hurt at the same time and offended. And I think navigating those realms is not something that we're taught very easily in training. And I, I guess I was, when we sort of wrote that part of the perspective, it made me hopeful that all of us were out there to help change the culture of medicine throughout the U.S., but also a little stress that there hasn't been a ton of change within cardiology in the last, you know, over a span of decades of, of, of trainees. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of the section that kind of was most difficult or I was most memorable to sort of talk about in this article. So for me, writing this article, it was, there was a kind of just one small paragraph, but probably very impactful to me was the paragraph that was dedicated to providers who are working alongside of LGBTQ colleagues, whether they're out or not, and being mindful of microaggressions that are directed towards this population, similar to what Tony's saying. I think it's so easy to think about women in cardiology and we think about sexual harassment, but there's so many other types of harassment that I think we just don't think about. When I think about harassment for the LGBTQ population, there's types of harassment called gender policing harassment. This is a form of gender harassment that's characterized by negative treatment just by deviating from one's traditional gender role. And this is something that I've definitely experienced as I like to ease Tony. I've been out since who knows the late 1970s. I was the last one as a medical student to be picked by the surgical team to do a case because I wasn't acting man enough. So that's gender policing harassment. They pick all the other guys on my team to go to the cases and I'd be the last. It's like being picked last for kickball, which I was also picked last for kickball, but I was okay with that. And there's heterosexist harassment, which is targeting individuals who deviate from the norm from just being LGBTQ or also by perceived as being such. So there could be a guy working alongside of me who's not gay, but is being harassed because they somebody thinks they're gay, which is just as bad as far as I'm concerned. The, the one point I couldn't drive home hard enough is how do I be a good ally? And this is something the cardio nerds really need. And this isn't just cardiology fellows. This is medical students, residents, faculty, attendings. Everybody in the department needs to be a good ally and treat patients with respect. And this is something that we just all have to learn how to be better humans, really. So I really want to thank you guys for writing this article. 
I think being a gay cardiologist myself, we'd never hear voices similar to mine. And so I think it was a really impactful article. I resonated with a lot of it. I think the whole idea of coming out on a daily basis is something that I experience a lot with colleagues, with patients and their families. I get often asked, oh, what does your husband do? Because they see that I have a wedding ring on. And it's like, oh, you know, learning how to kind of very gracefully tell them, oh, actually, I don't have a husband, you know, like I have a, a wife. Um, I think it's it's navigating that has been very challenging. And I also have noticed, you know, hesitation sometimes with patients and their families to disclose that just for the fact that I don't know how that'll affect my patient, you know, provider relationship. You know, just at least hearing that other people are going through that struggle has been really big. Similarly, the idea of mentorship, to know that there are other people, you know, feeling similar things um, in this field is really, really helpful. I work at a really large institution and there are zero out cardiologists other than me and one co-fellow. And so, you know, there's just, there's no discussion about it. You know, like I don't feel discriminated against on a daily basis, but like there are, you know, comments here and there and there's just different things to navigate. But I think having a more vocal presence uh, is really important to, to trainees, to other, you know, colleagues that we have along the way. And so I really applaud you guys for writing this. And um, I think it was it was really a great way to initiate this conversation. Yeah, I'll say that again. Thanks, guys, for writing this. I started dating women when I was in high school and I got outed. Somebody outed me to my parents and then I had to have a super awkward conversation and be like taken down to the basement. And, you know, that was my like first time. And then I, you know, I dated men and women for probably decades. Um, and so I got tired of coming out that that's really what ends up happening. By the time I got to residency and fellowship, I was like, screw it. I'm not going to have this conversation anymore. Like, I'm just going to like date and I won't tell people. Right. So I didn't actually get married until last year. Um, and I married a man. And now, um, you know, people are like, oh, but so now that means you're straight. But that's not how it works. Right. And I think for a long time, I just didn't talk about I, I did, I played the pronoun game, right? Where you just like, I'm dating, I'm dating this person, right? Kara's laughing because she knows where you, you kind of, they, it was before non-binary was like super cool and in, and we didn't talk about pronoun uses all that much. And so I just called everybody that I was dating, they, and then I only told um, a handful of people that I was close friends with who I was actually dating. And then it was a lot of discussions are like, well, I'm confused. So then I had to talk about, cause you know, Gay and lesbian is actually in the LGBTQ community a little bit more well understood. And then the bi, when you go back and forth, was hard for a lot of people. And I, get, I just got tired again. So um, I had been quiet for a very long time. And then I saw this article and I was like, man, I'm ashamed of myself for being quiet. So thank you, Stephen and Tony and the rest of you guys for really finding my voice again, because I, I lost it for a little while and then wanted to come back and just say it again, even though I am in seemingly heterosexual relationship um, that's not been my entire life. And so I think it gave me the courage to just be out about that to all of my division. And I think it's made a difference to my fellows in general, not only for those who identify as gay or lesbian or um, pi or anything in between in the queer category, but also for those that have family members. I'm now the person that gets referred to, um, you know, patients referred to them just because they see me as an ally. And Stephen, I think it's really important for all of us to use that voice, whether or not it's your own identity or somebody else that you know's identity, but, um, you know, to, to be 
kind of verbal about that. Kara, it makes me a little sad um, that there's not others out there. I'm pretty sure that there's somebody exists that's just not, you know, quite as comfortable as you are. So I'll, I'll end just by saying thank you because it um, reminded me that that's where we need to live now. Thank you all for sharing your powerful perspectives and educating all of us about areas where we can really ally and bolster our support for the LGBTQIA plus community and also highlighting very important areas of frustration. And I'd like to turn towards our second challenge for all the cardiovascular professionals who provide sensitive and compassionate care to the LGBTQIA plus individuals. This community of patients likely have unique risks, both psychologically and for some with implementation of gender affirming care. Our traditional educational curricula do little to equip us to adequately care for them, and many lack the understanding to provide sensitive and compassionate care. Now, the LGBTQIA community warrants special consideration when it comes to improving their cardiovascular health. Perhaps the best example of recognizing this came from Europe with the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, specifically discussing integrating sex, gender, and gender identity in our approach to risk assessment and management. And that document also went on to specifically highlight the paucity of data when it comes to cardiovascular disease in the transgender population. Now, Kara, I know you've done some incredible work looking into cardiovascular risk in the transgender population, and you've went on to further raise awareness by presenting and publishing your findings. Would you care to share a little bit about the work you're doing and what you found? Sure, Amit. We set out to try and figure out how to better care for the transgender population in the heart center. And when we looked just to see, you know, what's the baseline risk of individuals that fall into this category, there's no data. There's a lot of trials looking at people further down the road on hormonal therapy, but a lot of those are very muddy in terms of what they show us. And so we thought the best first step is just to look at what does this population look like before they even initiate gender affirming therapies, whether that be hormones or surgeries or that sort of thing. And so we looked at our multidisciplinary transgender center. We took patients from the past 20 years. So it was about 400 total patients. The median age, I think, was about 30. So a very young population. And just tried to describe what does that population look like at the start when they first present to care for gender-affirming therapies. And so we not only looked at our population, but we took that population and compared it to other published general populations using CDC data, NHANES, the National Mental Health Institute, all of these sorts of published data sets, just to see how does this population compare, you know, a similar age group. And so we found a, a number of interesting things. One was just reaffirming data that we already knew. The rates of depression and anxiety are incredibly high in this population. Uh, I think depression is four times higher. Anxiety is two times higher. This isn't in, in the, our single center population. Um, I think this is incredibly important because we know just data in the general population that mental health has huge cardiovascular impact. So that places transgender individuals at much higher risk. Uh, we found a lot higher rates of substance use, particularly tobacco, which we know is a huge modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular health. And so that was in every single category from young to old, much higher rates of tobacco use. We looked at both who had diseases um, that put you at risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as who had undiagnosed. So we looked at blood pressures in clinic. We looked at lipid panels. We looked at A1Cs and we found there were a lot of undiagnosed diseases. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. A lot of transgender individuals have a fear of the medical community. And I know we'll probably talk more about that down the road, but this may be their first visit to healthcare in a long time. And they present because they are seeking these gender affirming therapies. And this is a great time to diagnose and hopefully intervene. The thing that we found that was interesting, we used the ASCVD risk calculator as well as QRISC3, which is validated in the UK, but it's a similar population to us. 
And we found that if we compared the risk of our population using those calculators compared to the general population, that transgender individuals, and this is all pre-hormonal therapies, were more likely to be in high-risk categories. So in the, you know, or intermediate greater than 7.5% or greater than 20% and much less likely to be in the low-risk group, uh, which is less than 5% risk over 10 years. I think that was interesting because our population was incredibly young. And so I think there's a lot of questions about why are these really young people at such high risk for cardiovascular disease? And I think it's multifactorial. And I think Dr. Cook already alluded to a few of those things in, in terms of just minority groups having higher risk. But I think this is just the first step in saying, yeah, this is a high risk population. They probably have a lot more risk than we expect just given age. And the time when they present to care for these therapies, this is a great time to diagnose and treat because initiation of hormonal therapies does have some cardiovascular effects. And, you know, this is the time that we really want to do risk modification in these individuals that we know are very high risk. So that was more or less what we found. I hope this is the first step in actually trying to implement some strategies to help improve their health in the long term. Kara, thanks so much for sharing your work with us. And it's really inspiring to hear you say that when you realized that there was a paucity of data to help guide cardiovascular care for transgender patients, you set your sights out to generate the data to help approach this really important patient population. Before we could even get to risk stratification and management, we need to work on access to care and creating a safe space for our patients to feel comfortable disclosing their gender identities and sexual preferences. The 2010 Lambda Legal Healthcare Fairness Survey had some alarming findings, which I think we should talk about. You know, 9% of the LGB and over half of the TG respondents were concerned about being refused medical services. Over half of the LGB and nearly 90% of the transgendered respondents believed that there were not enough medical personnel properly trained to take care of them. And over half of the LGB and 86% of the TG respondents felt that the overall community fear or dislike of people like them is a barrier to care. As a cardiac who's dedicated his life or hopes to dedicate his life going further to caring for anybody with or at risk for cardiovascular illness, I find these sentiments deeply disturbing and they are a big problem. Dr. Cook, as self-proclaimed LGBTQ plus activist and a leader in health equity, what do you see as opportunities for us to improve the health of patients who identify within the LGBTQIA plus community? Dan, I wouldn't even know where to begin, but I will get it my best shot. So, you know, when I think about how do we best take care of our LGBTQ patients, I think we have to turn inward and start taking care of our LGBTQ professionals first so we can then take best care of our patients. So I may start with professionals first. I think you have to start with organizational changes first. Starts off with inclusive institutional policy. So I think Um, If there are fellowship directors or program directors listening in, you should be incredibly sure that your institution has non-discrimination policies that are inclusive of all sexual orientation and gender identities. The reason why I say this is to dovetail with some of the patient-related data that you talk about. But from a physician perspective, studies today in 2021 are no different from that a decade ago, where 78% of transgender and gender non-binary medical students and physicians still report hearing derogatory comments directed towards them at work, and even more importantly, receive inappropriate medical care because they don't have insurance. That's for healthcare professionals. So to provide comprehensive care for transgender and gender non-binary individuals, insurance plans need to include transition care for hormonal therapy. Imagine if you're a medical student 
who can't afford hormonal therapy that's not cheap. You have to receive anatomy-specific care regardless of your legal sex and any other medically indicated procedures related to transgender and gender non-binary people. You know, we were able to achieve a lot of these changes for insurance coverage um, at IU back in 2017. And I'm sure this wasn't easy for our HR, but this needs to happen nationwide. So that would be how we do organizational changes. I think we've talked about educational changes. I think at, at the very lowest level, all staff need to be trained to be sensitive and act appropriately towards LGBTQ individuals if patients are receiving appropriate care. I think there needs to be CME training requirements, not just for medical students, so we forget when we're re residents and fellows how to provide appropriate care, but it has to be happening at all levels of training. I think next you have to think about creating a welcoming environment. I think about these as integration strategies. I would ask all of you to kind of look around at your facility and think about what it would be like to be an LGBTQ patient to walk into your cardiology clinic and then go to the bathroom. Is that a welcoming bathroom? What do your bathroom signs look like? Are your healthcare brochures even inclusive? Are there two men holding hands? Are there two women? Is there a trans patient on your brochure? Probably not. Are there any symbols welcoming to the LGBTQ community? And probably most importantly, what I think about when I see LGBTQ patients in the cardiology clinic, I always try to think to myself, what has this person experienced on the way to the hospital? Discrimination, domestic violence, so important because what are they feeling as they're sitting in that in my office? And how can I reach out to that patient and just talk about other issues besides cardiology? And lastly, and most importantly, and, and hopefully this is something that maybe Kara did during her study, is that we have to grossly update our intake forms and our EHRs to include SOGI data. We're desperately behind the times. Because when I think about this, there was an announcement back in October 2015 by the U.S. Centers for Medicaid and Medicare requiring all electronic health records that are certified under meaningful use to collect SOGI data. However, this actually doesn't require any physicians to collect SOGI data. But if we are planning to evaluate any services that we provide to our LGBTQ patients or have our organizations determine what are our services doing for our LGBTQ patients, we have to collect SOGI data. And if we're going to do any research studies or future research studies on any subgroup of transgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, we can't do this without collecting SOGI data. So those would be my top three changes or how can we start moving forward for this community? Wow, that, that was incredibly comprehensive and multi-pronged. And, and just for the audience, I uh, to clarify, SOGI means sexual orientation and gender identity. You raised some points that I personally hadn't even thought about. And I think that probably speaks to some unconscious biases that uh, a lot of people hold, even when meeting well. So that it raises the importance of having these conversations deliberately and being intentional with our approaches. So moving on, in a survey of more than 26,000 U.S. medical student graduates, Samuels et al. found that 5.4% self-identified as LGB. Compared to heterosexual peers, LGB trainees were more likely to report mistreatment and burnout. We know that burnout and treatment, and Dr. Cook alluded to this before, have been associated with poor professionalism, decreased empathy, poor quality of care delivered, depressive symptoms, and even suicidal ideation. And not surprisingly, LGB students have reported concealing their sexual identity during medical school for fear of discrimination, as we've already heard about from everyone here. And I I think a lot of us are educators at heart. Like these are our medical students, and then these are our colleagues, and this is such an important issue. 
Tony, your perspective has been so valuable, but as a current fellow in training, would you speak a bit about your experiences and observations related to these findings? And then maybe Dr. Berlacher, I can turn it to you as a program director of a large cardiology fellowship training program and a leader in the broader graduate medical education community. Would you comment on maybe some constructive ways of creating a more safe and inclusive space around our trainees during training and beyond? Thanks, Ahmed. I would say was not surprised by the findings and it's probably likely an underrepresentation of the issue as a whole. And I think the issue is when the system is designed to make you question whether being your authentic self is going to hurt your career, then of course your mental health is going to be affected in those scenarios. And just to give you some examples in my own career pathway, I was two of two, there's two gay out medical students uh, when I was a first year medical student. By the end, there was 12, I just like to say that. But I remember starting the first like Baylor LGBT medical student health organization. And I had faculty as a first year medical student warn me that I should be careful, not open myself up to potential discrimination. And granted, I'm not that old. Like this was like 2000. Actually, I'm not going to tell you the med school age, but I was young. I was young. Okay. Uh, and then moving like so later on, pushing forward, like in residency, I like there was no LGBT health curriculum. And so I started one. I didn't know what I was doing. There was no faculty to mentor me. And I was I met with the head of diversity and inclusion at Baylor. He gave me the same warning, like, hey, I know times are changing, but be careful. And this didn't just come from straight cisgender people. When I was applying for residency and fellowship, I had more senior gay faculty and it's not their fault because this is the experience they had and the advice they got warned me about talking about my fiance at the time while I was trying to match around the country. And even now, even as I'm a PGY 10, like I get comments like, hey, you're you're a rising star. You're you could be a leader in our field. Everyone likes to work with you. But the idea of professionalism comes up sometimes, like fit in. People respect you more if you hold yourself a certain way talk a certain way around your colleagues. And I think the idea of professionalism, and I'm glad you like mentioned that word, is sort of loaded because it's a way, that term is a way for, for other physicians to marginalize minorities, to be honest. Like there's a difference between inclusion and assimilation. And I think that it's easy to say, hey, you are other, you don't fit the stereotype of, especially in cardiology, of a heterosexual cisgender white cardiologist so therefore you need to mode switch or change your behaviors to to be more like that those people because that's the formula that works in our field and believe it or not like i i used to do this all the time i used to deep in my voice when i was around other male cardiologists that were straight i used to read espn the night before i hung out with the boys club i still don't know anything about sports don't ask me but eventually what i realized is that I'm doing a disservice by trying to assimilate and change doesn't happen if I ignore who I am as an authentic person. I think what ends up happening to a lot of people in our community is that they try so hard to hide those parts of themselves. They're totally normal and not like they're not the problem. And by hiding that a very important part of who you are and your identity, then that leads to uh, uh, a disconnect and you get depressed and sad and have depression and that's just not sustainable. And so what really needs to happen is the definition of professionalism needs to change. It needs to include sexual minorities, gender minorities, people of color, women. And that's, I think, really what we as a community in the medical world need to focus on is redefining what is professionalism and making it more inclusive. 
Thanks, Tony. That was really great. And I'm sad that you had to experience some of that. I'm also proud that you sit here with us today to tell us these stories. I'll cover the sports for you. If you don't want to do that's totally fine. I, I do that on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a program director, Amit, thanks so much for asking that because I think it's a really important thing for everyone to know. And this gets to allyship too, which is somewhat of a generic word nowadays and has actually gotten a little bit of pushback with regards to its overuse at times. But I think for lack of a better word, that's what we should be. I, as a program director, have felt very strongly about creating a diverse culture in my fellowship and that I don't want, Tony, what you talked about was the ask to fit in. And a lot of the fellowship program directors will say, I just don't know if this person fits here, right? Um, or if they if they belong, they're, they're the like, and I hate that, right? Like, I actually am completely the opposite where I say, I don't want any single one of my fellows to be alike any of the other fellows. And we need to expand that diversity definition, right? It's not just about race and gender and ethnicity or even sexuality anymore. It really is about all different things like first generation college student, maybe your immigration status. Maybe it's just your personality, right? Cardiologists are tend to be a little bit more outspoken and gregarious, and that's not the way it has to be. I have a lot of really soft-spoken, wonderful fellows too. And so being open and thoughtful about that, I think first and foremost as a program director is really important, but then making sure that as a PD, you have to be vocal about it. You are in a position of leadership and it, and it is on your shoulders. You shape the workforce of tomorrow. It is an honor to be able to be in this position, but it is also a very large responsibility. And if you're not ready to use your voice in ways that create a more diverse workforce, I actually don't think you deserve to be a program director. I've prided myself on making sure that we recruit a diverse crew, but that means that you have to talk about it. And that has to be a regular consistent, normal part of your language. And that means being okay messing up, right? Like I've had to practice. None of us are really good at this. Even Stephen, who is, has been in this field for a very long time, the language surrounding LBGDQIA+, and everything, so it continues to evolve. As we started off with today, those definitions really are a challenge, even for those of us who have been in this space. And there's a lot of judgment. And so first and foremost, I think, Learn the language, but don't be afraid to mess up. Ask for help when you need it or when you're confused. I think that's totally okay. And the second thing that I would say as a program director that I've tried to do is to put clues in places. So this sounds hokey, but I can't tell you how important it is. On my white coat, I put a little lapel pin that is the GLBT pride flag with everything on it. And then in my, in my office, sitting on my desk, I have children's books, and one of the children's books is John Oliver's Marlon Bundo, which is about a gay bunny rabbit marriage. It's wonderful. If you haven't read it, you should read it. But, you know, that just kind of puts out a message that this is a safe space and that if you want to talk about it, that's okay. If you don't want to talk about it, that's also fine. But I want my fellows and my medical students and my residents and my colleagues and then my patients to know that I'm safe without having to say it in a corny or cheesy or somewhat awkward way. And I think that is what I want to say for everybody is if you can do one thing, just be the safe space. That's really all you need to be and say it quickly and easily and then move on. It doesn't have to be a big deal or a hard coming out conversation every single time.
Thank you again for these perspectives, Tony, from the trainee vantage point and Dr. Burlacher from the program leadership perspective. That's also incredibly valuable and just how you visualize what diversity and inclusion means to you as a program director and how that translates to your fellow recruitment really is eye-opening for us today. We would like each of you to share a message for cardiac if you're okay with it, that we work alongside colleagues and take care of patients who may identify as LGBTQIA+, or if you'd rather, a message for early career trainees who identify as LGBTQIA+, and are interested in pursuing cardiology. So we could start with you, Dr. Cook. Sure, I will share a couple of messages. One, again, I can't thank you enough for allowing us to speak about this platform today because I think that'll be so helpful for people who may be fearful about coming out. And given that there's so many professionals that may not be out in the workplace for our fellows in training, if you're working alongside an LGBTQ peer and really not knowing that, I think I have to dovetail with what Dr. Burlocker said, which is just being a good ally. It's so vital to combat discrimination that unfortunately is so alive and unyielding in the medical community even today. Just practice basic terminology. And like Katie said, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay if you're there with a transgender patient and you're stumbling along, they're going to help you get through the clinic visit with probably some polite laughter on their behalf. They'll be so forgiving with you and helping you through the clinic visit. I promise you, I've done it myself. I would absolutely avoid assumptions about pronouns and marital status. We've all done this as a medical student where you walk into a room where there, there's a woman and a man and you say, oh, is this your wife? And it turns out to be their grandmother. So it's the same thing when there's a couple in the room. So that's how I think about marital status and pronouns. As we take care of LGBTQ patients, just understand policies that may impact upon their lives and just how to address them. And just maybe even one or two resources that may be available within your institution. Where is the transgender clinic? How can they get help? Where is the HIV clinic? Because these may be people that came from all over the state that don't know where these resources are. I think for the trainee, just ask. If there's one thing that we need in the cardiology community, we need to start supporting and promoting sexual and gender minority diversity across all subspecialties, especially cardiology. This is only going to improve the care for our sexual and gender minority patients. So at our program, we actually have an outlist of all of our faculty. So I am the queer cardiologist on the outlist. Or if there's no cardiologist, I would ask to find out if there's a queer cardiologist. Look up the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association or GLAMA or join GLAMA to find other cardiologists. Maybe there's one in Kentucky that you could reach out to. Just ask. It's not going to hurt. It's only going to be helpful for you to identify somebody that can help you promote your career trajectory. So thanks. Actually, Dr. Cook, I'm going to pose a question from one among the audience that relates a little bit to your message. Dr. Brody Deb asked, uh, and I say, I, I quote, I have a practical question. Talking about salutations, do you use Mr. slash Miss when you don't know someone's gender preference? Do you call patients by their name rather than Mr. X or Miss Y? How do you approach that? Uh, I definitely go in and use their name first and ask what their pronouns are. Yeah, I've never gone into a room unless I know they're a doctor. I may use their salutations first, but I'll go in and say their name. And then I just ask what pronouns do you like? I usually say, hey, my name's Dr. Cook. I use the pronouns he, him. What pronouns would you like me to use today? That's the most easy way to do things, to get on the same level playing field. It's hard to give advice after Dr. Cook, but I'll do my best. I, you know, I think I have a lot of the same thoughts as Dr. Cook in terms of advice to colleagues. I think number one, don't make assumptions. 
we are all different. Even if we have a different label than you or we share the same label with someone else, that doesn't mean we're the same. So don't assume things, don't assume relationships, don't assume certain lifestyle just based on a label. Also, don't be afraid to ask questions. And actually, well-intentioned question is always welcome. And it, I think, expresses that you want to be an ally and you want to be supportive and learn. And I think that's huge. My wife gave me some advice to share. She said, if you're a heterosexual colleague or a cisgender, just remember that we're all actually a lot more alike than we are different. And so you may think, oh, I don't have anything in common with this person because they have a different lifestyle or they have a different title or they have whatever. But like we're all actually pretty similar in so many ways. And so find that common ground and don't just start the relationship or the conversation off thinking I have nothing in common with this person because you probably do. So I think that's good. I think for medical trainees, I would just encourage you if you're out, great, be visible. If you're not, then I would encourage you to come out. I think things always seem a lot scarier than they end up being. But I think that the best thing we can do is just be visible and have conversations on a daily basis with people. And that's what's really going to slowly change opinions and, and the way we interact with each other. So I, I told Ahmed earlier, this is the most out I've ever been. I'm a pretty low key person. Um, I, you know, I'm obviously like people know I'm married to a woman and it's a common, you know, we talk about things, but I've never been out on a national level. So that's, uh, was going to be first for me. But I think just be authentically yourself and that's where you're going to be the happiest and, and the healthiest. So that'd be my advice. Yeah. I love that, Kara. And I think that what I'm taking away mostly is to not make assumptions. And I was thinking about this when we were defining queer, uh, you, you know, and it's like in society, we really have a very binary divisions in our minds when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. And there's a lot of gray. And so I think people may not fit into a clear box. And so I love the idea of not making assumptions. And, and no matter where somebody lies in these gray areas, there really is a lot more we have in common with one another than we don't. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Dr. Burlock, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Amit. This has been really great. As I've been listening to everybody, I think a couple of things come to mind. Kara, as you and Stephen were talking a little bit, I think one of the things that you said is to just remember that we have a lot more in common and find something in common with somebody. And I, I really want to focus, you know, things don't change unless the majority actually changes. And really still LGBTQIA+, we're still a minority. And we really actually need everybody, those allies and, and others to change the field and the culture and everything else for this to actually be different. We can do a lot ourselves, but we actually need the majority to help us. And so I think one of the things when we talk about implicit bias, you've used that word or that phrase a couple of times. One of the ways to combat our own implicit biases, and this goes not only for sexuality and non-binary genders or this field that we're talking about, but also goes for race and ethnicity and all the other things that we've been talking about in this series is finding things that are alike, right? And that's how we really combat our own implicit biases. And truth be told, the LGBTQIA plus have their own biases too. We are not innocent by any means. And so I think owning those and finding likeness is really important. And then I'll, I'm just going to highlight it again is don't be scared. I think everybody is really scared of messing up. Just don't be scared. Be brave. Try one thing one time. What Stephen was saying with your transgender patient, you're going to be fearful and you're going to mess up a pronoun. It's just going to happen no matter how hard you try and no matter how many times you tell yourself, I've done it like a bunch of times and I practice and practice and then I go in and I mess it up. And we all do. And, and it's okay because exactly what you said, Stephen, is so true is it's the effort that counts and the genuine, the love in your heart really, honestly, as hokey as that sounds, is what matters most. Don't be afraid to mess up and try to find likeness or maybe two take-home points for me. 
Yeah, I love that, Dr. Berlacher. I think when we think about implicit bias, it, it makes people feel like they're doing something wrong or they're guilty of something. And I think that the whole point is that we all have implicit bias in different forms and we should own it and we should use that as an opportunity to learn. And I think one thing that we we are learning and, and Dan and I talk about this all the time across the narrative series is that one of the reasons why we don't address implicit bias is one of the reasons that we have these structural issues is that we are scared of talking to each other about issues that make them different from us. We are afraid to learn about somebody's X background or their sexual preference or whatever it is. And, and I think that one of the goals that we have with this kind of series is to normalize these conversations and make them more comfortable for people to, one, recognize that being different is okay, and, and two, recognizing it and talking about it is okay. So I'm hoping that kind of thing helps us own our own implicit bias in hopes of just making a more inclusive and stronger community. Yeah, thank you. Next, we can uh, turn it over to Tony. Loser. All right. Um, I think, I mean, so many great things have been said already. I think I'll start off by saying I would consider doing a PGY 11 year. Dr. Berlerker will be my program director. Um, no, and seriously, in seriousness, from a patient standpoint, I think sometimes, as has been reiterated multiple times, like the fear of offending people sometimes has the opposite effect. And I do think it's really important to educate our colleagues and not necessarily embarrass them. But I, I think as a whole, cardiologists, are incredibly compassionate physicians and they want to learn these things. And you can do it in a graceful way and take someone aside and say, hey, that interaction, I was not totally appropriate. I would have maybe mentioned this or used these pronouns. I've done this a couple of times in my career, despite some power differential and people like 99.9% .9 of the time have been incredibly grateful for that and then have used that information to auto-correct their interactions going forward. I, I taught my biggest mentor, the woman I owe my entire early career to, the word microaggression, and she's obsessed with it. And granted, she thinks it's a microaggression that I don't like her country music, but she is slowly getting it. And I, I think my final message, final, I promise, is that it's to younger trainees. I would say, like, reach out to, to mentors like us to to anyone on this call or anyone at your institution because i really wish looking back i'd had a dr stephen cook or dr Burlerker to help navigate my career and i think it's really important that as we as a generation get older and have the opportunity to mentor the younger physician group that we do help mold them to ultimately change the landscape of medicine in the next couple of years that was perfect, Tony. A strong message to end this discussion on. You know, I want to thank each of you for allowing yourselves to be vulnerable and sharing so much of yourself, your experience, and your perspectives with all of us. We think of vulnerability as a position of weakness, but I think that out of this discussion actually comes a, a position of great strength and pride. Dr. Cook referred to this as a silent minority, but my hope is that these types of discussions do empower everyone who identifies as LGBTQIA to stand tall and be who they are, all of their colleagues to be an ally, and all cardiators everywhere, regardless of identity, to be powerful advocates for all patients, regardless of their backgrounds and preferences. So Kara, Tony, Dr. Cook, Dr. Berlacher, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with us today. Beep. Beep.